0: Is there a new mode of hegemonic warfare taking the form of pro-democracy movements? How have institutions like the National Endowment for Democracy and affiliated non-governmental organizations advanced American imperial interests from communist Poland and Yugoslavia to Ukraine and Armenia? Are there aspects to the Nicaraguan protests not being discussed in mainstream media? What geostrategic goals might the U.S. be hoping to achieve through a weaponized student movement in Nicaragua? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we explore a rarely discussed weapon of modern warfare, referred to as the Colored Revolution or fake democracy movements. In our first half hour, geopolitical analyst and writer F. William Engdahl breaks down some of the history and evolution of this stratagem, as captured in his recent book, Manifest Destiny. In our second half hour, we hear from Managua-based Stephen Sefton of the Tortilla Consal Collective about recent events in Nicaragua, which are beginning to resemble events leading to the soft coup in Ukraine. On this week's program, one of the most important weapons of warfare developed by a NATO country, colored revolutions in the Nicaraguan case study. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 25th, 2018. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Akin, the homeland of the Metis and the traditional territory of the Hiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The Contract for the Government of Change Stipulated by Luigi Di Maio and Matteo Salvini on behalf of the Five Star Movement and the League, on the one hand, confirms Italy's membership of the Atlantic alliance with the United States of America as a privileged ally, and on the other, promises an open minded attitude to Russia which should be perceived not as a threat but as an economic and commercial partner, which would imply the withdrawal of sanctions to be rehabilitated as a strategic interlocutor for the resolution of regional crises and even as a potential partner for NATO. The formula is not new. In June 2016, Prime Minister Renzi assured President Putin that the Cold War is now history and that Europe and Russia can be excellent neighbors. A month later, at the Warsaw Summit, Renzi signed the EU-NATO strategic pact against Russia. How can the new government cease perceiving Russia as a threat and act accordingly while it remains a member of NATO, which, under the command of the privileged ally, is increasingly committed to combating the Russian threat? That comes from the article, Video for Italy, A new government, the same privileged ally of U.S.-NATO, by Manlio Di Nucci, posted May 24th, originally appearing on Il Manifesto. The elections are over, but the electoral process in Venezuela has not ended. Maduro has requested a full recount and verification of ballots to convince public opinion that the election was legitimate and transparent. It is tempting to compare Venezuela with other countries on the best practice of elections, but that is not the point or requirement for transparency. Venezuela would not be more democratic if it could show that some percentage is higher or lower than in some other country. Venezuela is democratic because the majority of the people made it so by exercising their constitutional right to vote freely and independently, and, we may add, despite the international interference. That comes from the article, Elections in Venezuela, Democratic, Fair, and Transparent, by Nino Paglicia, posted May 24th. (music) Yulia and perhaps Sergei ahead are only allowed to publicly say what UK authorities permit, Britain scripting her remarks, letting her say only what her captors permit. According to former UK ambassador, human rights activist Craig Murray, Yulia's comment about, quote, not wishing to avail myself of Russian embassy services, unquote, mistranslated what she said. Clearly, she recited UK scripted remarks, Reuters complicit in the deception. Yulia is a Russian national visiting Britain only to see her father. Except for a brief April 5th scripted-sounding phone conversation with her cousin Victoria back home on a temporary phone given her, not her own cell phone she's not permitted to have, she and her father, Sergei, have been held incommunicado, currently at an unknown location, denied phone and computer contact with their relatives in Russia. That comes from the article, Yulia Skripal's scripted public remarks, The Skripals are UK hostages, at an unidentified location by Stephen Lentman, posted May 24th. If it now a matter of public record that running a torture prison is a good career move, supported by both parties in Congress, and it is also interesting to note how fiercely the CIA fought to keep from having to reveal details of Haspel's career or even the records of the torture prison, it is unlikely that reports relating to events that took place 16 years ago could continue to be classified because they would reveal intelligent sources and methods. Rather, they remain top secret because they are potentially embarrassing to the participants, to those who directed and approved the activity, and to the organizations involved. In that light, the Haspel confirmation's acceptance of zero accountability is a perfect example of precisely what is wrong, with the United States government. That comes from the article, for US Congress, running a torture prison is a good career move, by Philip Giraldi, posted May 24th, originally appearing at Strategic Culture Foundation. (music) Israel needs conflict and the destabilization of Syria and Iran, Hezbollah's suppliers, so that Israel can seize southern Lebanon. The American neoconservatives who are firmly entrenched in the Trump regime are de facto Israeli agents. Moreover, they are committed to American hegemony, which requires the overthrow of independent governments. Putin is betting that Washington's pursuit of hegemony in the Middle East will cost Washington hegemony in Europe. If Putin does not win this bet, he had better be prepared for the war that Washington and Israel are aiming directly at Russia. That comes from the article, Washington's Sabotage of Russian Diplomacy, Putin's Peace efforts are coming to naught by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted May 24th, originally appearing on Paul Craig Roberts Institute for Political Economy. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click donate on the menu bar. After decades of propaganda, the general public is becoming more adept at discerning the pretexts for war that are principally evoked by political leaders about the need to go to war with this or that country. There are, however, new ways of engaging regime changes that don't involve lies about weapons of mass destruction or or self-defense against exaggerated threats from terrorists or communists. A relatively new instrument which involves new innovations of social media and psychological research is known alternatively as colored revolutions or fake democracy movements. The idea is that members of a society will be convinced to destabilize their own country in the name of democracy or freedom or human rights. A replacement for the governing authorities will be sought, which principally advances the aspirations of U.S. hegemonic rule, not the ideals animating popular struggles. A new book by author and Global Research news NewsHour past guest F. William Engdahl explores this topic in depth. The book is called Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance. It has recently been published by Mein Books in Germany. F. William Engdahl is an award-winning geopolitical analyst, strategic risk consultant, author, professor, and lecturer. He's been researching and writing about the world political scene for more than 30 years. His various books on geopolitics, the interaction between international power politics, economics and geography, have been translated into 14 foreign languages, from Chinese to French, from German to Japanese. He has lectured on contemporary geopolitics as visiting professor at Beijing University of Chemical Technology, and delivers talks and private seminars around the world on different aspects of economics and politics, with a focus on political risk a regular contributor to a number of international pol- publications on economics and political affairs including asia times financialsense.com the real news at rt.com op-edge william is a research associate of the center for research on globalization and a member of the editorial board of eurasia magazine he currently lives in germany and in addition to writing and giving interviews on current events consults as a political risk economist for various private organizations, major European banks, and private investor groups. In an interview conducted in early May, Mr. Eggendal explained the origin of a new mode of military intervention that had its origins in the Central Intelligence Agency.
1: It came out of a project proposed during the Reagan administration in 1983 by Reagan CIA director, William Casey, Bill Casey. And at that time, the CIA was under the spotlight in Senate hearings and exposés around the world, the uh, revelations by CIA whistleblowers for their involvement in the Pinochet uh, coup in Chile for the uh, Iranian uh, uh, toppling of Mosebeck uh, in the 50s and so All that was beginning to come out, and it was having... a Huge negative effects. So Casey proposed doing what the CIA does, but doing it privately, and that resulted in creation of something by the U.S. Congress called the National Endowment for Democracy, using non-governmental organizations in a coherent way. I call them fake democracy NGOs, and uh, you can uh, get a better description in the actual book itself, as I detail which NGOs are, are used to that, the monies come from the U.S. government or from certain private foundations, and they have systematically targeted uh, nation after nation to copy regimes that are not friendly to the Washington agenda.
0: Bill Casey's first target for NED, advanced regime change, was communist Poland. As described in Engdahl's book, Poland was the weakest link in Moscow's chain of command. Starting in the mid-1980s, the NED funneled technology and equipment, including fax machines, copiers, computers, and phones, along with millions of dollars, into Lesz Walensk's Solidarność, an independent, non-communist labor movement.
1: They tunneled millions of dollars, US taxpayer dollars, into Leszczelens' Solidarność and created mass protests on the streets of Poland at a point where the communist government was simply powerless to intervene, among other reasons, because unbeknownst to most people, the Polish Pope, John Paul II, who had just been elected, and he met with Ronald Reagan and entered into a secret agreement, and this was later confirmed by his Reagan's National Security Advisor, a secret agreement to bring down the Communist regime in Poland. And they did that very successfully. Once they brought down the regime, they immediately privatized everything, but they free up his lobby against the dollar, so this lobby fell like a, a lit a stone. And... Then if you suddenly had dollar assets like Western investors uh, who were on the inside of this game did, you could buy up some of the crown jewels of the Polish economy for pennies on the dollar. And the losers in this were the Polish
0: people. William Engdahl mentions three more primary targets for NED-style interventions. The Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, and China.
1: In the Soviet Union. They managed to bring in a CIA asset by the name of Boris Yeltsin and use Yeltsin to simply what I call in the book uh, The Rape of Russia, to literally steal and rob from the Russian state and the Russian people almost anything of value that they could get their uh, kleptocratic hand on. And in the case of Yugoslavia, it, led, it was the ignition that led to the explosion of a civil war and completely destroyed that, that country. In the case of China, the Chinese intelligence somehow managed to get rid of what was going on and kicked out certain NGO operatives that were connected with the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Ambassador at that time to Beijing, James Lilly, who was a former
0: CIA uh, crony of George Bush Senior. Is it possible to detail some of the money flows? Where, like, how does it translate on the ground? If I could put it that way.
1: How it translates on the ground is the money goes to all sorts of NGOs in, in target countries that pop up out of the, uh, thin air. In the period uh, of the Ukraine color revolution, the so-called Orange Revolution in 2002-2004 and also in Georgia, that's next door, uh, they began uh, focusing on election processes and having poll watchers, fake poll watchers, and then uh, coordinating with... uh, embedded media like, like CNN or BBC to put out a certain
0: message. William Engdahl mentioned a Serbian organization called Otpar, which he claims was trained by U.S. intelligence that, and it was instrumental in the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic. This organization would evolve and become a template for further military operations in areas where the U.S. had strategic interests at stake. Engdahl explained the mechanics of this outpour model of regime overthrow.
1: That later transformed itself into a professional organization, keeping the cover of this successful uh, Serbian uh, regime change organization that they call Canvas, C-A-N-V-A-S, but the same people are involved. They're very secretive about where they're coming from, but it's, it's clear that it's coordinated with the U.S. State Department's intelligence. And what they do, they serve as the logistics training center. Uh, the people on the ground from the U.S. government, and usually through the embassy, uh, begin recruiting uh, student activists, usually, they're the most effective. They're trained in techniques very much similar to what we see going on today in Armenia. But they're trained in techniques to discredit the power and the authority of uh, authoritarian governments or governments who try to resist uh, mass protests. The techniques there have been refined with Facebook and Twitter. Techniques are constantly being upon The RAND Corporation, Research and Development Corporation, as you tell in the book, Manifest Destiny, is uh, developing techniques they call swarming. And they did a study of all or most of the major world brilliant military commanders from Alexander the Great to Genghis Khan Napoleon and others. And there are military tactics. And then they apply this to these mass protests. They use Twitter and Facebook to communicate with, with groups of, of protesters. And then uh, their tactics will be protest and run, protest in one group in different parts of the city and then keep the government completely off guard keep the military or the uh, security police off guard so that the power of the state
0: looks like it's important, And that begins to undermine authority. The Arab Spring protests inspired popular struggles around the world. Taking a close look at one of the most dynamic of these revolutions, the overthrow of Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, William Engdahl explains that the Arab Spring protests were clearly influenced and orchestrated by hegemonic U.S. imperial interests.
1: I've spoken with some, some of the students who were in those protests, and they, they believed that they were fighting for democracy and human rights. And that, without that, it doesn't work. It's not convincing. So that's an essential element of it. But what most of the students didn't realize is that behind the scenes were front organizations Of a political terrorist cult called the Muslim Brotherhood, which was created in Egypt by British intelligence in the nineteen twenties, and in the time of the Arab Spring, led back by the American State Department, as the alternative to governments like Mubarak or Libya's Gaddafi or Ben Ali in Tunisia, and so the. Demonstrations spread, were successful. Once Mubarak stepped down, the Muslim Brotherhood and the U.S. government moved to have early elections, and the only organized force that was prepared to win early elections was the Muslim Brotherhood, and that's where you've got Mohamed Morsi and the government controlled by the Muslim Brotherhood and supported by... US State Department and, and, uh, and the CIA, which have been working, collaborating, and which with the Muslim Brotherhood since the early 1950s. In any event, the students were suddenly completely left in the lurch by Washington and the US government because their agenda was to bring in this uh, political uh, terrorist organization.
0: In terms of financing these revolutions, uh, how much of that funding is coming from, you know, authorized by Congress versus off-the-book financing? And, and where is the, the off-the-book financing coming from?
1: There are private foundations that work in connection with, with the U.S. government finance, the National Endowment for Democracy, and uh, And the breakdown of that is very difficult simply because they don't disclose in an open and honest way, fully look are financing. It's, it's very difficult to
0: trace. William Engdahl mentioned in his book one of the mechanisms financing the looting or raping, as he put it, of Soviet Russia. It involved the use of gold obtained by the Japanese during the Second World War from colonized China, Mongolia, and Indonesia, and hidden in caves in the Philippines. Philippine leader Ferdinand Marcos came across this gold and top attempted to sell it on world markets with the help of CIA asset Adenan Khashoggi. Khashoggi was friendly with George Herbert Walker Bush, a former CIA director.
1: So they used that Philippine gold, the Marcos gold, as collateral to create derivatives that were used to nominally back up the buying up of the Russian state assets by certain so-called Russian oligarchs uh, we laundered the money through Western banks in Switzerland and the Jersey Islands offshore uh, UK and, and other places. And all of that was done under the supervision of the CIA. And mean bank is one of the banks involved in that as well.
0: When we look at different uh, you know, revolutions that might be happening all the world, can we, we, can we safely conclude that they're all you know, stage managed and, and fake? Or, or is there a way that we can distinguish between a genuine and a a fake democracy revolution.
1: Sometimes very difficult. For example, the ongoing protests in Yerevan and Armenia. Armenia is a former Soviet, uh, part of the Soviet Union as well, and a very strategic country for the security of Russia.
0: In April, protests in Armenia resulted in the resignation of Prime Minister Serge Sargsyan, Engdahl discusses the similarities between the popular revolt against Sargsyan and similar revolutions in Ukraine and other Soviet satellites.
1: Yes, the same U.S. government NGOs and private foundations that work with those U.S. government NGOs like the National Endowment for Democracy are very active in Armenia and have been active in Armenia on all the kinds of... uh, and operations that have been connected with color revolutions in the past. This time, the opposition leader, Young, goes out of his way to suggest that he's not against Armenia's membership in the Eurasian Economic Union or against uh, Russia, but he's against the corruption of the Sargesian, the former government, and the fact that the Armenian economies in such bad shape. So there are genuine grievances that the population has, but the point is the US State Department is very much on the scene. They're in telephone contact with Kashinyan, uh, and um, all the indications are it hasn't been. At its initiation, a color revolution. Let's, let's take a in the government mm-hmm. agencies, uh, which are trying to find out the best way to get advantage of that. In Azerbaijan, parliamentarians mm-hmm. from Azerbaijan are saying, let's take advantage of this chaos in, in Armenia and retake Nagorno Karabakh, which is majority Armenian uh, ethnic population that seceded in 1991. Mm-hmm from Azerbaijan. So, in some cases, it's a very difficult distinction. Like I say, in the case of Armenia, I would say the jury's still out. My own sense is that it is being manipulated in the direction of the color revolution by the U.S. Government, State Department, intelligence agency. Uh, But it's it's not 100 percent clear yet.
0: What do you think, I mean, it seems to me that uh, you've mentioned the, uh, I mean, there the, 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 the was the, the revolution uh, or U.S. interference in, in Russia and the looting of Russia uh, throughout the 1990s. Yeltsin was eventually removed and Vladimir Putin came in. And since Vladimir Putin uh, has arrived, I, I think the future of, of any more uh, of this kind of U.S. intervention within Russia seems to be very uh, uh, you know dim uh, as is the case it seems to me in China again as you mentioned the uh, that that revolution that fake democratic revolution as you put it, it it does not seem to have prevailed so what what are your thoughts about the future of this mode of uh, th- th- this weapon of this you know, fake dem- democratic, method of mechanism of warfare uh, are, are the other states uh, catching on are, are they going to be able to defend themselves from this are they learning their lessons
1: yes and no I would say uh, Russia has certainly learned its lesson in the Russian security services figuring out uh, the pattern in Ukraine Georgia and And they passed a a bill in the Duma called the Law Against Undesirable NGOs, which uh, various NGOs screamed and hollered about. Uh, China has made a similar crackdown on the NGOs, and Um, other countries, countries like. Smaller countries, uh, I would say, union is a good example, are less experienced in this kind of thing and therefore less prepared to deal it in an effective way. So it's it's very uneven. It's very uneven, and these are highly insidious uh, operations where you have suddenly NGOs popping up and calling for democracy and more freedom for whatever and country, whether the and then it's picked up by select Western media like CNN or BBC uh, as a genuine grassroots
0: movement,
1: and the focus on the dictatorial regime. So most regimes don't want to be get a bad
0: press. F. William Engdahl's book is *Manifest Destiny*. Democracy is cognitive dissonance. It is available on Amazon. For more information about William Engdahl, check out his website, William Engdahl, that's e-n-g-d-a-h-l dot or read his articles posted at globalresearch.ca. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. On April 18th, anti government protests sprang up across Nicaragua triggered by reforms by the Sandinista government of the country's social security system. The opposition protests led by students and backed by Nicaragua's business lobby are accusing the government and its leader, Daniel Ortega, of violent crackdowns and repression of dissent. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, an autonomous arm of the Organization of American States, conducted research in a preliminary report principally held the government accountable for the violence, which they say included torture and murder. The IACHR documents 76 people killed and 868 injured since April 18th. Nicaraguan officials are currently in talks with students and business leaders to resolve weeks of tension with the increasingly unpopular Ortega. Are the events of the last month in Nicaragua representing a shift toward democracy that was left by the wayside under a once promising guerrilla leader? Or is this an example of the latest colored revolution designed to advance U.S. imperial interests in the country and the region? To discuss this question, we turn to Stephen Sefton. He is a community worker and co-worker of the anti-imperialist Tortilla Consal Media Collective, based out of Managua. Welcome, Stephen.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me to talk on your program, um, Michael. Yes, um, well,
0: um, yeah, so it sounds like you got a little bit of rain there in the background.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and so, uh, we're, we're, everybody's very pleased because the rainy season started uh, on, on time, and, and which is very important for local farmers and for the economy as a whole.
0: huh. Now, um the mainstream Western press is speaking of brutal crackdowns on peaceful protesters of, of the Ortega government. And um, you know this description kind of resembles much of the reporting on the Euromaidon in late 2013, early 2014. I was wondering if you could just give us your group's interpretation of events, maybe starting with a, a breakdown of, of s- the circumstances that led up to the, uh, the uh, student protest of, of April 18th.
2: Yeah, and the, the I think you have to look at the the history of the last uh, five, six, seven years here in Nicaragua. Um, in, from 2010 onwards, the Nicaraguan economy has been the most successful economy in Central America, um, apart from Panama. But that's you know, Panama, such a special case. And in, in terms of its uh, immediate neighbours, Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras, and Costa Rica. Nicaragua has been by far the most successful economy uh, from 2010 to date Um, and that explains in large part the incredible popularity of uh, uh, President Ortega in electoral terms. Um, He won the election in 2011 with over uh, 60% of the vote and he won the presidential election in 2016 uh, with just over seventy percent of the vote. so and 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 both those elections were regarded as free and fair by international observers. Um, however, begrudgingly they may have acknowledged that the vote reflected the, the will of Nicaraguan people. where the European Union, for example, um, had an observer mission, they they acknowledged the legitimacy of the vote. Um, and many other election observers did as well. So then the question is, what, what has happened between 2016 and 2018 to trigger this incredibly violent um, series of events that began on April the 18th. <coughs> and uh, our, our, our answer to that question is that uh, it's very much, as you uh, pointed out in your um, introduction there, um, uh, 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 one of these colour revolutions, very similar to what happened in Ukraine, um, very similar to what happened in Libya and um, uh, Syria back in 2011, and so then the question is, how seriously does one take (coughs) the the preliminary report of the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, which is a body very much under the thumb of the United States, it has its secretaries in Washington. And many people here in Latin America regard um, the organization of American states as little more than a ministry for the colonies, um, you know, and borrowing that term from the Spanish Empire and trans- translating it to the current attempts of the United States to reimpose its um, imperialist dominion over Latin America and the Caribbean.
0: The OAS did exclude <clears throat> Cuba from uh, after shortly after the revolution, right? Yeah,
2: and and of course, and it, uh, when it was originally set up, it was set up just at the beginning of the Cold War, and the, but, but let's not distract, get distracted by the history of the OAS. To We're trying to to to, to realise what what the OAS is, you just have to look at the way it's behaved towards Venezuela, and its disgraceful interventionist behaviour in Venezuela, um, completely in 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 breach of its very own rules. So. anything coming out of the organization American states is highly questionable because it's always biased against any progressive government and the same is true of this preliminary report now um, the figures may be right but it's completely um, uh, impractical on their part to say that they carried out a sufficient investigation to be able to know where responsibility lies for the violence They they arrived in the country on uh, Friday April 17th and they they've been they've been in the country for precisely four days and they're a very small delegation and not more than a dozen people as far as I know. So how is it possible in just four days for these 12 people to adequately investigate the events that took place over a pre- over the previous month and it's just absurd. so then one has to say well um, why did the event start now? The, the, the supposed trigger, the alleged trigger for the protests was a social security form by the government um, uh, that, that was interpreted as being anti, anti-worker anti and anti-pensioner when in fact the reverse is true as uh, so often in these cases as uh, so often um, we've seen in these, these colour revolutions the immediate pretext for uh, the, the, the violence that erupts Um, turns out to be false on closer examination and that's very much the case here because what happened was that the the business organisation withdrew from uh, the negotiations about the social security form because they were the ones that were going to pay more and it's true that there were modest increases for workers and a slight cut in benefits for pensioners but the, that cut for, in benefits for pensioners was more than compensated for because they were going to be, as, as a result of the reform, they were for the first time um, ever in, Nicaragua's, in the history of Nicaragua's social security system, all pensioners would be entitled to the same health rights as active workers contributing to the system. So and, uh, why, why, why did the uh, business... Uh, Organisation withdraw because they were the ones that were going to have to pay more, and if you, if you uh, this is very important for, to, to, to understand the contradictions in the subsequent pro- protests. The fundamental contradiction is this: um, the students protested a social security reform that was actually more favourable to the workers than the business uh, the business side's uh, proposal and their protests um, are being supported. Look at who's supporting their protests. People like Marco Rubio, Ileana Roselet and Bob Menendez, and Donald Trump and Mike Pence, you know, and they, they support the, 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 the protests because they, they, they're saying that it's a legitimate call for democracy in Nicaragua, which is one of the most democratic countries in the region. And the other thing to bear in mind is that um, it's big local corporate uh, businesses that are also supporting um, the protests. Now, if you look at that, what you, people need to ask, why is that? Do, you, do they really believe that big corporate capital and the United States authorities and right-wing U.S. senators could care less about democracy in Nicaragua?
0: No? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> But, I don't know, I guess that speaks to the grip of uh, the propaganda systems.
2: Yeah, and, and I think well, the angle that you're taking is absolutely right. I mean you know, this is very, very similar to the coup in the Ukraine in 2014 and the, 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 the NATO-backed coups against um, Libya and Syria back in 2011. But let's leave it there for now and look at what actually happened. On the Wednesday, the 18th of April, there were protests by students and a few pensioners, but the main pensioners organisation, the one that has represented um, pensioners in Nicaragua in negotiations over the last two or three years, accepted the reform because they recognised that overall it was beneficial to to pensioners in Nicaragua. mainly it was the students that were uh, protesting on Wednesday the 18th. And what happened was that rival groups of students and rival groups of young government supporters clashed with the protesting students. And the police then had to intervene to maintain order. And that is where the violence began. And on, on Thursday the 19th, the situation dramatically changed because what you then had were... Um, very determined uh, groups of armed extremists who were deliberately attacking the police. Now, the the image projected in the international corporate media, of course, is of peaceful protests. But the protests from Thursday the 19th on and from late on Wednesday night, Wednesday the 18th on, were far far, far, from peaceful and involved violent groups actually attacking police stations attacking they, they burnt down a building in the university of leon the national autonomous, autonomous university in leon and um, there's uh, some some damage to other university precincts in Niagara. but the, 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 the fundamental thing that gives the lie to the, uh, the suggestion that the protests were peaceful is that they attacked um, the municipal offices in Granada. they attacked Municipal officers in, 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 Messiah. in Messiah, They attacked municipal officers in Esteli. And on, on the Wednesday, oh, sorry, on Friday, the 20th of April, uh, the, on on that night, when two students died, nobody knows how they died. They were shot, but nobody knows by whom because the police were not firing live rounds. The, the authorities here insist that the police were not firing live rounds. And what happened that night, here in Esteli, where I live, is that a a group of between 500 and 600 attackers attacked the Alcaldea. They attacked an adjacent building that was used as a store for food for Nicaragua's extensive social programs. And they also tried to ransack a local supermarket. Now, in that that battle, it was a five-hour pitched battle, in that battle... Um, uh, around 1,000 of these homemade mortar rounds were fired. And those arms are, are very, they're lethal. And, and, and also, some, around 16 or 17 Molotov cocktails were thrown at the um, al just at the al that's the municipal authority office.
0: Are you talking about the, the larger group, or is it maybe just a minority faction that are doing these things?
2: No, and, and the, it, the, the, it's, the, the, the the extremist groups are very c- clever and, and w- have worked a very carefully uh, planned uh, oper- operational scheme. They and they uh, they intermingle with protesting, protesting students, then provoke the violence, then the students get caught up in the violence, and, and that's, that's and that is what, what is what has led to tests among among the students. But But if if you you analyze, as as you you said in 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 the report, report, the Inter-American Commission report, they they talk talk about over 860 860 wounded, wounded. and that that may well be true. But of of those wounded, around 200 are police. And of the dead, at least three or four are police. And so among those 76 dead, and let's assume that that, just for argument's sake, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, I don't think. The number, the number of dead, dead associated with the, the protest is, then, is that that large. But let's uh, say it is. Of those, at least half are police, um, bystanders, or government supporters. At least half, and the rest may be um, uh, students or protesters. Or, 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 or because what what we can know for sure, and this, this is very well um, substantiated by, by testimony, is that. The, the, uh, a substantial number of the people involved in the violent attacks are paid young delinquents that have been recruited from barriers and they're paid the local sorry, the local districts
0: of, of, in different cities of, of, Managua, of, sorry, of Nicaragua, Managua, Leon, Escalina, Sire and other parts of the
2: country and they're bused in to different parts of the country to carry out the attacks. And they're paid between 10 and $15 a day. That's very well substantiated. So then, I mean, if you look at, if you look at the events of, of the previous week, um, just the, of, of last week, the, 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 there were repeated attacks on police stations, even though the police had been withdrawn from the streets.
0: This is what's so extraordinary here in Nicaragua. Can you imagine any other country in the world
2: where, faced with these kinds of protests, the government that's accused of being a dictatorship would withdraw the police from the streets. And so what, what happened at that point? At that point, you know, you'd have expected, expected the, the, the protesters to say, oh well, we can protest peacefully now because the police aren't on the streets to repress us. But instead of that, what did they do? They attacked police stations. They attacked police stations in Masaya, in Matagalpa, and in Himataka. And, and in those attacks, attacks they injured police police officers and wounded at least three government supporters.
0: Just saying that uh, the uh, you know very early on the government started to, to back away from any repressive violence, but the opposition oh, the opposition uh, forces, uh, including these uh, individuals, I mean, are we talking gangs here? There were increasing their violence. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they
2: increased their violence. They increased their violence. mean on April the twenty first, President Daniel Ortega announced that. Um, he was proposing a national dialogue and the business organisation here accepted that. Then on uh, April, Sunday the 22nd, he said that he was withdrawing, he was instructing the uh, Social Security Institute to withdraw the proposed Social Security reform, which in any case wasn't going to be implemented in Ju- until July, um, and may well have required debate in the National Assembly before it could be implemented in any case. so um and when when he announced that at the same time that he announced the withdrawal of the reform measure, he he announced that he was requesting the Episcopal conference here, which is an organization of the Catholic uh, bishops the bishops of the Catholic Church here in the Corgua, to mediate the national dialogue. Um, and at that point, the, he, the, the, op- the the police operations began to be, uh, take a much lower profile, um, and the, the, in order to give the national dialogue a chance. Now, you tell me, Michael, in what other country in the world would uh, the government make such such a big concession to extremely violent protests? They were, there was nothing peaceful about the protests uh, uh, that attacked municipal offices and key stations. And then on top of that, following that weekend of the 21st and 22nd, the, the relatively small opposition groups, just to give you an idea, and there are something like 15,000 um, members of uh, transport organizations in Managua. Of those, around 200 were trying to impose a strike on their, on their, their fellow uh, transport workers, taxi drivers, bus drivers. And so forth. And what they did was they 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 kind of set up uh, roadblocks around the city, and they were actually attacking taxis with passengers in them, and attacking buses with passengers in them. They even attacked a bus that was carrying children um, with disability from a special school, taking them back home. And there's been nothing peaceful about those protests. But at the same time. And with all that chaos, uh, the the opposition did hold um, peaceful protest marches, but the, the, those were very much the exception rather than the rule, because over the last month, the the whole population here in Nicaragua has been subject to really serious intimidation, and there the, are the roadblocks set up across the country that are, ref, that are refusing to let... Um, Uh, tucks with supplies of all kinds uh, circulate freely, and and there have been various incidents in which patients in ambulances have suffered as a result of the roadblocks. Last week, a a pregnant woman that was on her way to to hospital um, over in the east of the country on the Atlantic coast um, went into convulsions in the ambulance because, uh, because it, it had been held at three for three hours at one of the roadblocks, and the, 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 the team in the ambulance were unable to stabilise, and she died. And so, and the, the if people want to talk about human rights, and that's one of the things that's uh, being debated as we speak um, in the national dialogue process, because what the overwhelming majority of people in Nicaragua are indignant about is that their rights. Are being denied their rights to freedom, freedom of movement, their rights to be able to uh, go, uh, uh, get, get to hospitals and um, get to school and um, just carry on their normal life. But all the, all those basic rights are being denied them by a minority of people who are calling for the overthrow of the government. Uh- now, and the, and on that score, it's worth bearing in mind that even Luis Almagro, who's about as under the thumb of the United States' imperialists as you can get, the Secretary General of the Organization of American States, even he has rejected those demands by the right-wing extremists because he says it's un, it, it's undemocratic. Uh
0: uh-huh. huh. How, how do you think things are going to turn out? Is this going mean, to is it going to be like uh, Ukraine, or are we going to is the the country going to recover and, like, is it, well,
2: I mean, it it's, you, you can ask me, and if you ask me in 10 hours time, I'll we'll have a different answer, because it's a real rollercoaster, uh,
0: yeah. and sometimes
2: you think everything's going to work out all right, and other times it just looks as though civil war's just around the corner, mm. you know, and it's just, it, it's impossible to kind of, it's impossible to say what's going to happen, I mean, but, the only thing you, the, In that respect, the, the main question is... Um, the, the government's bent over backwards to uh, promote dialogue and make, make the dialogue possible. The opposition, on the other hand, to have set preconditions. They're very aggressive um, in, in, in the installation of the dialogue. They were very aggressive. They clearly don't want the dialogue because talks won't get them what they want. Which, which is Ortega out. Yeah, that's, that's what, what they, they want. want. Yeah. Um, but, but the difficulty the that they have is that the vast, vast majority, majority of people in Nicaragua sympathize with the government, the government because the government has given them um, the best economic conditions anybody in Nicaragua has ever experienced in their life. Okay? And that's no exaggeration. exaggeration. I and mean, if you look at Nicaragua's history, history and uh uh and, and i i was born in i'm, I'm 66 i'll be I'm 65 i'll be yeah. 66 this year um i lived in in nicaragua for yeah. almost what is it almost 30
0: years no over 30 years now. wow 1986 do you remember and the... 30, 32 years right yeah. yeah. and and i i the, i've never the, the, Nikolai has never been as prosperous prosperous as it was over the last five years. Never. Oh, yeah. And I imagine that uh, the the Contra insurgency is still in in the living memory, so, you know. Yeah, and and it's really interesting. interesting. If you talk talk
2: to to former Contra contra leaders, leaders, um, they'll they'll say that
0: they are against what's going on at the moment because because they they recognize recognize that this government government has...
2: Um, radically radically transform transform the progress economy economy for the better, better, especially in terms of democratization. And 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 just a a simple figure. 70% of the population work in small businesses, uh, family businesses, cooperatives,
0: um, that that kind of
2: area. Um, And they generate uh, around 53-54% of GDP. So it's, it's the popular economy here after uh, 10 years of government under the uh, San Minister President, Daniel Ortega, that is the motor of Nicaragua's economy. It's not the private business sector. Mm. You know, uh, and that, that that is something fundamental to understand about Nicaragua's economy. And the business sector are actually a minority contributor to the country's GDP. The main contributors are um, the popular economy, the associative cooperative economy, small businesses, and the government, government investment—those are the main components of mm. GDP. It's
0: a kind of economy that's not convenient to hege- hegemonic world powers.
2: Oh, yeah, correct. And, uh, but there's so many aspects of this that we need to—you you, know—to understand what's going on here.
0: You yeah. need to
2: look at so many different aspects, and uh, we can we can just touch on them in the in the briefest possible way in these conversations.
0: Yeah, that's true. I did want to get one quick question from um, about the, uh, the the local media and uh, how that's influencing the situation.
2: Well, the, the local media here are, are, are mostly controlled by the opposition. The two main newspapers are c- controlled by the opposition, and half the te- the television channels are, are controlled by the opposition, including. Um, a, a, a virulently anti-government news channel called Sen Pusyenten Noticias. And so, um, one of one of the good things that has happened is that the national dialogue is being is being televised. So ordinary people can see for themselves what the positions of of, of the government are, the the, the, the various interest groups in the Corregman society and economy aligned with the, the government. And the and and the and the opposition. Now, the, the the key thing that the opposition are refusing to do is that they are refusing to dismantle the roadblocks. Now, and the roadblocks are, 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 are operated by masked thugs who are armed. And it's it's, it's like if you get I mean, do you live in is it is it Toronto that you live in? I'm, I'm you, based are, in
0: Winnipeg. <laughs> okay.
2: Well, um, imagine any big city in Canada. And imagine that all the main um, roads out are blocked by people, masked people, carrying weapons. And that the police are off the streets. And imagine that. Well, that's the situation here in Nicaragua.
0: Well, you know, I really appreciate you because the, everything that you're saying here is has been completely off the mainstream media radar. And I think we're our listeners are very grateful for uh, your helping shed light on this situation. So I, I want to thank you very much, Stephen Sefton. And um, also, if uh, our listeners want to know more, they can check out the the website, tortillaconsol.com. So thanks, Stephen, for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Okay, you're very welcome, Michael. I'm I'm, I'm glad you You think think it was useful. That was our show for this week. If you like what you heard and value the independent perspectives this radio program brings every week, Please consider a generous contribution to stations like CKUW, which air the program, as well as to the Global Research website by visiting globalresearch.ca and clicking Donate on the menu bar. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.